What's the Nuclear Hydrogen Initiative? And today we take a look at the life of the Gaia Theory co-founder James Lovelock, who passed away this week at age 103. Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Friday, July 29th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Some insurance companies in Japan are beginning to sell heatwave insurance more efficiently to help more people pay for their medical bills in the event of a heat stroke. Sonpo Holdings Inc. and Sumitomo Life Insurance Co. began to provide same-day insurance opt-ins people can decide to use based on morning forecasts. Sumitomo Life, in collaboration with the mobile payment app PayPay, started a heat stroke insurance plan in April that cost 100 yen or 73 cents for a day's coverage. Users must opt in before 9 a.m. This new plan increased the amount of heat stroke insurance policies from 400 per day to about 6,900 on June 29th. In that same period, a record-breaking heat wave hit Japan and heat stroke hospital cases spiked to 14,353. Over in the Middle East, Pakistan has lost 282 people now to deadly floods that have taken place over the past five weeks, according to the Natural Disaster Management Authority. We first covered this on July 12th. Many of those who died were women and children. The torrential rainfall and resulting floods have destroyed critical infrastructure and damaged around 5,600 homes. While it's normal for the area to have a monsoon season, this year's rain was 87% heavier than average. Pakistan is continuously ranked one of the most climate-vulnerable countries in the world. Its infrastructure is also in desperate need of investments. Speaking of floods, let's turn our attention to the U.S. Missouri and Kentucky have experienced deadly flash floods over the last three days. St. Louis, Missouri saw record rainfall on Tuesday as more than nine inches of rain fell overnight, surpassing the 6.85 inches that fell in St. Louis in 1915 and that time was due to the remnants of a hurricane. The average amount of rainfall in the city for July and August is 7.31 inches total, two deaths reported so far. Then in southeastern Kentucky, eight died in flash floods yesterday. The governor expects the death toll to rise to double digits. People living near a lake had to evacuate as it overflowed. More torrential rainfalls and flooding are expected to continue pounding middle states over the next week. Now for a climate study. A new report published in the journal Ecological Economics determines that moving faster to electric vehicles will have a benefit of not just reducing transportation emissions, but also agricultural demand for biofuels. The gas side of the transportation sector has been trying to reduce emissions by adding biofuels to traditional gas, with almost all U.S. gas having 10% biofuel added. But most biofuel comes from corn, adding demand to the agriculture sector. Biofuel can be a method to decarbonize harder to decarbonize sectors like trucking, but using it for the average car doesn't seem to do much more than just move the emissions to the agriculture sector. The study found that if we reach 100% electric light duty vehicles by 2050, we can avoid agriculture emissions equivalent to as much as 39.4 to 52% of 2019 U.S. gas car emissions. It also keeps land almost the size of Switzerland from being deforested globally for agriculture use in the next 30 years. Let's look at some climate victories now. 
Germany approved $180 billion or 152 billion pounds from the Climate and Transformational Fund to accelerate the clean and anti-Russia energy shift over the next four years. The money will come from carbon pricing and fund reserves, so it will not impact the federal budget. It will go towards improving the energy efficiency of older buildings, expanding renewables, cutting harmful industrial emissions, developing the hydrogen sector, and promoting electric vehicles. Speaking of hydrogen, internationally, a global coalition of 40 just formed the Nuclear Hydrogen Initiative. Just as it sounds, they're working to get nuclear energy to make green hydrogen, or apparently hydrogen made by nuclear power is called pink hydrogen. Either way, finding a way to produce it without fossil fuels is powerful because it can become an effective way to decarbonize harder to decarbonize sectors such as aviation and trucking. Those are hard to electrify because there's a point at which the energy required from a battery makes the battery too heavy and large. A heavy battery cancels itself out. Hydrogen doesn't have this problem, so without leaks, hydrogen is a great decarbonization tool. But leaking could cause a problem because hydrogen indirectly causes more global warming. Indirect means it doesn't warm the planet itself, but it combines with other chemicals in the atmosphere that would usually take methane out of the atmosphere. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere, though it could be longer if hydrogen keeps doing this. So leaks are a real concern. If you're on YouTube, let me know your feelings on hydrogen. But we're starting with the first problem of hydrogen, which is it's mostly made as a byproduct of producing methane gas. Running electrolyzers to split water into oxygen and hydrogen is pretty energy intense to rely on wind and solar, but one traditional nuclear plant produces a lot of energy. So the initiative wants to create some demonstration projects. Some members include the nuclear plant operators Entergy and Constellation, environmental groups like Clean Air Task Force, government entities like the International Atomic Energy Agency and Ohio National Lab, and hydrogen supply chain players like Cummins and Siemens and Bloom Energy. Speaking of which, Bloom Energy just opened a new multi-gigawatt manufacturing plant in Fremont, California that will produce green hydrogen from clean energy, along with an accompanying research center. Over to the lithium battery side of the industry, General Motors launched a new effort called EV Live to increase public education on electric vehicles through schedulable one-on-one tutorials with a trained EV specialist equipped with a video camera. The auto industry has shown a quick shift to embrace electric vehicles, but the general public's comfortability lags. A recent Consumer Reports survey shows that with only 2% of Americans owning electric vehicles, only 9% of Americans are very familiar with the fundamentals of owning one. However, lack of knowledge hasn't hindered interest. 14% of Americans surveyed said that if they were to buy or lease a car tomorrow, it would be an EV. 22% of Americans are very interested in buying one in the future, and another 35% might consider it. So there's a lot of room to grow. Okay, we have a bit more detail on the new $555 billion Inflation Reduction Act. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin virtually handshook on via Zoom yesterday. According to the press release, the government expects investments in a wide variety of technologies like solar and wind power, batteries, hydrogen, nuclear, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and emissions reduction systems. It includes a 10-year extension of the production tax credit and the investment tax credit programs for clean energy. 
Towards the end of the Trump presidency, he directed those tax credits to be reduced to nothing in the next five years, and those credits are needed to compete with the already established and subsidized fossil fuels. You know what? There's so much more to share that I'm going to go ahead and make a video on this, so look for it early next week. But I will say the government estimates it will result in a 40% emissions reduction nationwide by 2030, which is not the 50 needed to maintain our Paris Climate Agreement, but way better than we would have done without this act. It will still be the biggest federal climate investment in U.S. history. It will need all Democrats to pass, leaving it to the second most questionable Democrat, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, to make the decision. Meanwhile, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, or MISO, approved a $10.3 billion investment to add 18 new high-voltage transmission lines, setting the stage to add 53 gigawatts of renewable energy to the grid starting in 2028. This will greatly help the clean energy transition and build grid resiliency. MISO manages 15 states across the Midwest and the South. Now for the climate fails. The BBC flopped leading the presidential debate Monday when it comes to the climate crisis. They only asked the Tory candidates one climate change-related question, and it was, what three things should people change in their lives to help tackle climate change faster? Not, how are you going to encourage clean energy development? Or, how are you going to protect the UK people from future heat waves? Their question puts the responsibility on the consumers like it's the early 2000s. And yet, Rishi Sunak still made himself look bad with his response. He emphasized recycling more. Really? At least Liz Truss said propping up green technology. Several environmental organizations and campaigners, including Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Fund, and Green Alliance, wrote to the BBC to rebuke them for inadequate questioning. We'll see if they improve in the following debates. In the private sector, Bloomberg reports how BlackRock has rebranded its mutual funds three times in the past six years to appear more sustainable, originally calling them impact investment funds, then ESG, and now sustainable as views of these terms shift. And the greenwashing has worked because the money is flowing in. They can do this because there's currently no regulations for what can be deemed an environmental, social, and governance fund or to properly disclose where the money goes. These funds often still have fossil fuel companies in them. There are many private and public regulatory bodies threatening to do something about this, but so far, nothing official has happened. BlackRock has stepped back on how much responsibility it says the financial sector has to affect change in recent months, saying it will no longer support climate and social resolutions. We have a death in the environmental family. James Lovelock, the co-founder of the Gaia Theory, passed away on his 103rd birthday Tuesday. The Gaia Theory, which he founded with the American microbiologist Lynn Margulis, sees Earth as a complex, living, breathing, and self-regulating organism, and that human activity have thrown a wrench into that system. That's an incredible oversimplification, and I have been wanting to do a video for some time on it, so maybe I'll get to that someday. But until then, you can look it up. There are a few books on it. A bit more about Lovelock, he was born in 1919 and raised in London and studied chemistry, medicine, and biophysics in the UK and the US. He was a researcher at the National Institute for Medical Research, where he looked at how temperature impacts living organisms. He then worked on NASA's moon and Mars programs at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California in the 60s. 
He also worked as an independent scientist for several academic institutions. He developed a highly sensitive electron capture detector to measure ozone-depleting chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, in the atmosphere and pollutants in the air, soil, and water. He and Margulis developed the Gaia hypothesis in the 70s, named after the Greek god of the Earth. Margulis passed away in 2011. Lovelock was known as a great science communicator. He warned about desertification, agricultural devastation, and mass migration due to climate change. In 2020, he told The Guardian, quote, The biosphere and I are both on the last 1% of our lives. The biosphere lost a dedicated and vocal champion, and he will be missed very much. Okay, to, I guess, um, mobilize the sadness, I want to end today's episode with a call to action. In the fall, the climate justice youth movement and fossil Occupy will occupy hundreds of schools and universities around the world to demand climate action. If you want to get involved, there's a link below. And that was your climate recap for Friday, July 29th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becksphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.